Father God, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us through the book of James, and we thank you for all that you are teaching us. Father, we give you this time, and we ask you to use it for your glory. Settle our hearts and our minds. Enable us to hear all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we are in James 5. This is our last lesson, and we have made it. James starts chapter 5 with some pretty harsh indictments. And I think it's important to note who he is talking to. He addresses these people, you rich people. He, he, these are not believers. And in every other indictment that he's given, he's always, or, um, he's always said, brethren, and within that accusation or that correction, he then calls to repentance. These people are never called to repentance. And this is the first six verses here, and all it is is indictment after indictment after indictment. There's no repentance. So I believe that kind of points to the fact that these are not believers. So then we have to ask our quest ourselves the question, why? Why? would James address these people? The letter is not written to them. It is not likely that they will ever encounter this letter. It's read and it's circulated and it's read in the churches to believers. It's written to Hebrew believers. So we have to ask, why would he include this? Why would he go to all this trouble? I think that James' purpose here is not to teach the ungodly rich about the error of their ways, but to show his Christian readers what God thinks of what they're doing. And this is something that was often practiced in the Old Testament when the prophets would give a prophecy about surrounding nations and the judgment of God. Those nations never heard that prophecy or that judgment. It was meant for the ears of God's people. It helped them understand how God viewed them and how God viewed sin and how God viewed these other people, these other nations. And it helped them know who God was. And I don't believe that um, these people will ever hear this or were intended to hear this but I do believe that it will help these Christian hearers of the letter to not envy the rich or to not try to imitate and aspire to them. He is showing them that this is dangerous and the errors that it creates, that wealth is an obstacle for God's kingdom. And it is still an obstacle if we are not supernaturally led by the Holy Spirit, we could fall in the, we face the same danger. And everyone in this room is probably considered very wealthy by the world's standards. And so I think there's a, there's a warning here and just an awareness to be careful what we think about the wealth we have, what we do with it, and what God wants from that in us and why he gives us those blessings and what he wants us to use them for. 
James wants his readers to know how to think about the rich people around them, not to envy them or aspire to be like them. It is not their wealth that is the problem, but what is done and not done with the wealth. And that's what we have to remember in our lives. These people were physically or outwardly very wealthy, but they were spiritually or inwardly very impoverished. And that's not what God wants for us. First, James rebukes the rich because they were guilty of hoarding their riches. They were guilty of cheating others. They were guilty of a selfish lifestyle. And fourth, they were guilty of taking unfair advantage of the righteous. And I think that some of his anger was rooted in this issue. James was not a wealthy man. And a lot of Christians in that day were poor. And so for them to be taken advantage of or oppressed by the wealthy, that created a righteous anger in James and a defense, a defensiveness a protection kind of for these people. We do not know the future. All that we plan, as we learned last week, is subject to and should reflect the will of God. And that includes our wealth. As with all good things, wealth is to be used. It is to be used in the service of others, not in the service of self. And here was part of the problem here with these people. They, they were very, very selfish. They could only see and they only were hoarding and lavishing on themselves, right? Wealth is to be used, not amassed. God blesses us for the purpose of blessing others. And here's what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly, richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So there, here's God's directions to us for our wealth. So the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. This really caught my eye because every time I read it, I was reading it wrong. And I thought it said Lord of the Sabbath because you know, you just, you're skimming over, right? So I, I looked up this word. It is a Hebrew word which also stands out because this whole book is written in Greek. But here is this Hebrew name for God that all of his readers would have been very familiar with. So Jehovah Sabaoth is Hebrew. It refers to a captain or general who commands a mighty army. It means Lord Almighty, Lord of hosts, is how we see it interpreted into English. It means, and it gives a picture of God as a warrior. He is the commander chief in chief of heavenly armies, angelic armies, massive armies, mighty armies. 
It's God's name of authority, of war, and of supernatural power. Jehovah Sabaoth is the God of unlimited power, unbridled might, and untarnished glory. This is the God that they were offending. And it was meant to be very sobering. And his audience, which were the ones that were being oppressed, it was meant to show them that God hears your cries. This mighty God of armies that commands armies, he is not going to forget this. And this is James' message to them. Wealth in this world can present an obstacle or a hindrance to the kingdom of God because it creates an independence from him, an arrogance, and we need to be careful of that in our lives. It takes God-given wisdom and supernatural humility to be able to manage wealth and influence. Now, in verses 7 through 12, James changes his audience. He goes from you rich to brethren. He goes from the oppressor to the oppressed, from the unbeliever to the believer. So this is a very different message. And it starts with therefore. And whenever you see therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. And this verse 7 in the New American Standard starts with the word therefore, but in my New King James there was no therefore. And I think that's unfortunate. And if you have an, um, a Bible that doesn't have the word therefore, I think it makes it harder to understand this passage because this word opens up the meaning of this passage that we're about to um, talk about. Therefore shows a connection between this indictment and what he is instructing these Christian readers to do. He is saying in essence, therefore in the light of the Lord coming with his judgment, his ultimate judgment, be patient. His, the whole rest of this chapter revolves around this theme. Be patient, patiently endure. And he's going to show them what that looks like and how to do that. He first, he gives them an example of the farmer. And this is such a great example, such a good word picture. And all of us understand a farmer and what he does. Some of us more intimately than others because we've been farmers or gardeners or, but these people, farming was very common. In fact, everybody practically was a farmer. It provided your food for your family. And to some degree, almost all of his readers would have farmed something. So this was a perfect example for them. Like the farmer waiting for the harvest, we need to wait in confidence. That farmer has no doubt that his harvest is coming and he waits and we need to wait for the Lord in that same confidence. From June to September was their dry season and the land became very parched. There wasn't a drop of rain. It's a Mediterranean climate and it was warm. The early rains occurred in October to November and it rained for about six weeks, which enabled all the seeds to germinate and sprout. The latter rains came in April to May 
and the harvest grew and it gave them the water they needed. Now, it doesn't mean that it didn't rain at all in between, but that's when these, this season of rain that they're talking about came. And it's interesting to note that in fall is the Feast of Tabernacles. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, I learned they have a whole ceremony with water and they carry up jugs of water and it's poured out on this holy site. And there's this prayer for rain to the Lord and this recognition that we are totally dependent on Lord and rain. And this is important example it, that he gives because rain in the Old Testament was not just a function of nature. It was also an indication of blessing and God withholding the rain was also an indication of punishment or discipline. And we will see that theme carried out through the rest of this chapter. It all relates to that. So what are we supposed to do while we wait? The farmer doesn't sit idly while he waits for his crop. He is busy. He is pulling those weeds. He is fertilizing that ground. He is doing everything in his power to make sure he has an abundant and healthy harvest. But James tells us while we wait, we must establish your heart. While we wait for the Lord, this is what we are supposed to be doing. It means to fix something firmly in place so it is immovable. Our faith needs to be solid. We need to make sure our faith is in the right thing, that it's on the rock of our salvation, right? That's where our faith is, and that's how we establish our hearts. So as we wait for the Lord and we patiently endure maybe oppression or whatever comes our way, this rock, this faith, this establishment of our heart is what will keep us until he comes. So we must establish our hearts. It's just a, a little sentence and it's so easy to overlook, but it's important. And this is what James tells his readers they must do. It shows what kind of patience will be required of us. It is not passive. Waiting does not mean inactivity. It means we must be in prayer. We must be in his word. We must be in fellowship. We must be establishing our faith and making sure that we, our faith is in him and it's grounded in the right places. And all of those things help us. And he was gonna show us this. We need each other. We need his word. We need prayer. Christians awaiting the justice to come are to do all they can to strengthen their faith in God. Next, he tells us, do not grumble against one another. So easy, so easy when you're under pressure, when you're being oppressed, when we're in trials, to try and find someone to blame. It's so easy and it comes so naturally to us to grumble, to complain against others, to find fault. But we must remember that the judge is at the door and God's coming is near doesn't necessarily refer to a timeline, but it does mean that he is near in proximity. He's not far away. When it is time, all he has to do is step over the threshold. He will be here. He is close. He is near. 
The judge stands at the door. And because of that, we need to be careful. Like we learned, it ties into what we learned about our tongue. We need to not grumble. And he gives prophets as an example. An example of suffering and patience. Now, the call of prophet was not a glamorous call, if you know anything about this office. Those who exercised their call and their office of prophet did it quite often at great personal cost to themselves. They were required to speak in the name of the Lord, and it meant saying things people didn't want to hear. It required them to expose the sins and injustices of their peers. They were not popular. A prophet arose in Israel only in a time of crisis or apostasy. They were not commissioned to make friends and influence people. They were not promised success. They had to go out and preach no matter what. They might not see one person ever turn or listen to them. So we see that the basic requirements for the office of prophet were conviction, courage, and patience. Because the events they foretold were often not even fulfilled in their lifetime, they had to be patient and they had to trust the Lord. And this was the essence of their call as prophet. Hosea was a man of sorrows. Haggai was called on to utter woe after woe, after woe. Could you imagine if that was your job, how that would affect you? Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. These men did not have a fun job, and many of them were killed because of what they said. But James says, indeed, we count them blessed who endured. And then he brings up the example of Job. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where Job is mentioned. I found that interesting. James tells us three things about Job in one very short verse. He tells us the perseverance of Job. He tells us the end intended by the Lord. And the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Job was had a perseverance that is hard to understand. I'm not sure I would. He remained faithful to God. All of his friends turned against him. His wife said to him, you might as well curse God and kill yourself. He had no one, no support. But he had established his heart in the Lord and his faith, although he, he grumbled he never turned on God. And remember, he had no idea. We know what was going on because God has shown us that Satan came and asked this permission and God's purpose in this, but he did not know. And so his perseverance was amazing. And James brings that out as an example for his readers and for us. He also says that we can see the intended by the Lord. His good purpose in Job's suffering was not the end of his story. His suffering was not the end of the story. The Lord is very compassionate 
and merciful, James tells his readers. Well, if you're not careful when you think about Job and what the Lord allowed Satan to do, it would be easy to think that does not seem very compassionate and merciful to me. Why would he say that God, this was an example of God's compassion and his mercy? Well, here are four things that we know when we study Job. God only allowed the suffering of Job for a very good reason. It wasn't frivolous. It wasn't for naught. Number two, he restricted what Satan could do against Job. God protected Job. Number three, God sustained Job with his unseen hand throughout all his suffering. That's why Job's faith was able to hold. That's why Job was able to persevere, because God sustained him. In the end, God used Satan's attacks to bring greater blessing and greater godliness into Job's life. God blessed him through it. And so these four things show us God's compassion and his mercy. Now, James talks to us about oaths and how we are not to take oaths. Now, in order to comprehend what he's talking about here, we have to understand a little bit about Hebrew culture. And in the culture, it was common that they took oaths. And there were two types of oaths that were very common. One was a binding oath, and one was a non-binding oath that you could break, I guess. The binding oath included the name of God. The non-binding oath did not. So if you didn't include the name of God, you weren't bound to your oath. And James says, stop playing games. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, and just be honest people. Don't try and get out. If you don't mean it, don't say it. And it's very to the point and very basic, but this was obviously an issue for them among each other. In verses 13 through 18, Job now talks to us about prayer. And remember, we learned this way back when we were doing the introduction, that Job was a man of prayer. He was known for his praying. And he spent so many hours on his knees in the temple that his knees were deformed. And they said of him that he had knees like a camel. So Job knew a little something about prayer. And he is now showing his readers why effective, fervent prayer moves the heart of God. Certainly, in order to patiently endure this life while we wait for God, for the Lord to come back, we need to be praying. We need to know how to pray. And he tells them, are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Worship. Well, what is worship? Worship is prayer. It's communication with God. God loves to hear his praises. Are you sick? Call on the elders to pray. The word for sick here means weak or feeble. 
And in the New Testament, it often refers to physical illness, but it also refers figuratively to those who are weak in faith or have a weak conscience. And you can see examples of that both by Paul in Romans 4 and 1 Corinthians 8. In James, the emphasis is more on the person who is weak from physical illness, and James prescribes three things. They must call for the spiritual leaders of the church, which assumes that they have a church, and that church has spiritual leaders. How important is that? Number two, James prescribes a specific response by the elders, prayer and anointing. In the Greek, these are combined in this verse, these two actions. So it's more like pray while anointing him with oil. Now, anointing with oil, we see multiple examples in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and was primarily done for two reasons. A religious or ceremonial act as the anointing of a king, a symbol of consecration, or it was also used as a medicinal or hygienic use. Wounds were bathed in oil, and there's an example of that in the Good Samaritan. Remember when he finds the poor guy that's been beat up by the robbers and he pours wine, disinfectant, and oil in his wounds, a healing property of oil. So we see that oil and the anointing of oil can have more than one meaning. The idea of prayer and anointing was that the church should seek to come to the aid of both the physical and the spiritual needs of a sick person. James had no conflict between prayer and medicine because these elders were called to pray but they were also called to anoint him with oil, which was, had healing property, something that a doctor might do. The prescription for the physically ill was to leave the results up to God. Ultimately, God does the healing, not the oil, not the prayer, not the elders. God is our healer, and he is the one that heals. Praying in the name of the Lord, which is what it said, means praying according to his will. In verse 15, James gives three specific results of the elder's prayer and the anointing offered in faith. Number one, restoration. Number two, raising up. And number three, forgiveness. This suggests that James may have had in mind someone who suffered illness as a result of sin. He's not saying that everyone that's sick, it's because of their sin, but this might have been the case that he was talking about. And he says, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. So remember, the operative word there is if. Not everyone that's sick, committed sins, but if they had committed sins and they were sick as a result, the elders are to come, there's to be confession, and then forgiveness. Remember that stress 
can be a killer and can cause all kinds of havoc in you. If you are carrying in your heart an unforgiveness or a bitterness, it will make a stress, it will eat you. We can see how this might cause a physical ailment. It does not mean that every time you get sick, it's because you, it's connected specifically to sin. But the Bible does say a merry heart, do with good like a medicine, right? I read a testimony of a woman who was crippled with arthritis, just disfigured because of it. And she happened to be the pastor's secretary. And one day, the elders of the church decided they were going to pray for her. And so they did. And the discernment was that this arthritis, the root of this arthritis was a root of bitterness that this woman had growing in her for years and years and years. And you know, that can come in so small that you don't even notice and yet can grow and even be huge and not notice because it doesn't come all at once. It comes little by little by little. And so you're carrying this burden that you don't even realize until it's gone. That, that actually happened to me and I, I didn't even know I had this root of bitterness until I, I was prayed over and it was gone. It was unbelievable when the burden is not there. And that's what happened to this woman. And I think that that is kind of the thing that James is referring to these people that he's writing to, that this can happen. And as we go along, you will see how that relates to the rest of this chapter. So if the illness was caused by sin, then God's restoration can include both physical and spiritual recovery. So verse 16, again, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you may be healed. Again, the word therefore is, is very key and unfortunately, Sometimes that doesn't appear in every translation, but this is an important word. This connects this verse to the anointing of the elders in the prayer. So therefore confess your sins to one another. So what James is saying, I believe, is that in some people in this congregation also need this type of spiritual healing this healing that comes from confession and prayer. And what he is saying to them is get this taken care of before you're the one on the bed calling for the elders. Take care of this now. Take care of this matter before the sickness sets in. This example that you don't want. Confess your sins to one another and pray. And this suggests that they need to make amends with those who have wronged and forgive those who have wronged you, but make amends with those you have wronged, but also forgive. So if you confess your wrongs, this is like a personal individual between two people. This is not, I'm going to stand up in front of the whole congregation and spill out every sin I've ever committed. This is not, I'm going to go to a priest and confess my sins. He, this is something very specific that he's talking about. And if there are people in your congregation that you have wronged, you need to go to those people and get that taken care of. 
and you confess, and then you pray. So when believers confess their sins to those they have wronged, their guilt will be healed. And when they pray for those who have wronged them, their bitterness will be cured. When we release the burdens of guilt and bitterness through confession and prayer and are spiritually healed, it spiritually heals our ability to pray more effectively. When we are healed and we are right with God, we now can move on to the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. If you, and this is what James is leading up to. If you hold an offense, you're not going to have a fervent prayer. You're not going to have an effective prayer. So these things have to be taken care of in the congregation or outside the congregation before you come to prayer. So the example of this affected prayer warrior was Elijah, as we all know. And first, James tells us that we need to pray in every situation. We need to pray when we are afflicted with trouble. We need to pray when we are ill. We need to pray when we are cheerful. We need to call on the elders when there is sin and we need prayer and forgiveness. Because when stained with guilt and bitterness, the cure is prayer, confession and prayer. So Elijah as our example, James encourages his readers and us, and he says, Elijah is a man like you. We might look at Elijah and look at his life and think that he, no wonder he had these wonderful prayers. He was this man of God. He performed these miracles. I think the only other person in the Bible that performed more miracles than Elijah was Jesus. Okay, so when it comes to incredible miracles, Elijah is not like many of us. But when it comes to prayer, he is someone just like us. And this is James' example of a righteous man. And his example is not that of perfect prayer. His example is powerful prayer. Elijah often prayed for things that he shouldn't have. He prayed for his, that he would die. Remember that? He was not perfect, but he is the example of powerful prayer. That that James brings up. And it's somebody very familiar. They all would have known about Elijah. And so we see that prayer. Now, the two examples of prayer that James brings up are when he prays for no rain and he prays again and then it rains. Now, Elijah was a man of prayer and there were many, many amazing prayers. Why does James specifically state these two prayers? They weren't, in my opinion, even his great, greatest miracles. What about the widow whose son had died? And he goes in and lays and prays, and God raises this boy because of his prayers. I mean, why is this not an example to these people of fervent, powerful, effective prayer? These two prayers concerned God's discipline in rain and his um, withholding the rain was his judgment on these, on his people, on his believers. And he was judging them. At the time, Ahab was the king. And God's word says that Ahab was the most wicked king Israel had ever had. 
He did more wickedness than any other king. And part of the problem was he married Jezebel, who was not an Israelite, and she was an idol worshiper, and she brought with her this Baal worship and over 800 prophets from this false religion into Israel. And the people there that were God's people were double-minded. They wanted to see what they could get from this Baal and not have to give up God. They wanted both. And this is what James is speaking against. And so Elijah comes in and because he knows the word of the Lord, he knows in Deuteronomy, if you go back, I think it was in our lesson about God's pronouncement about if you follow the law, I will bless you and I will bring the rains for your crops. But when you don't, I will withhold the rain. It was a very specific judgment on them. And it brought about when there was no rain and there was just three years of drought. And you can go back and read the story. It's pretty amazing. You know, Elijah's faith in the Lord, where they have the test and the fire and the whole, it's very dramatic. You could see the Cecil B. DeMille whole action in the movie, but it brings about repentance in God's people. And this is the point. And when this genuine repentance comes, when they see the error of their ways because of Elijah's preaching, because of Elijah's prayer, because of God's discipline, then Elijah goes and prays and the rain comes and God blesses them. He takes them back. He's merciful. These are his people, and they were committing a form of adultery, which is what double-mindedness is. And this is what James is telling his readers. This is what James is telling us. And he goes on in the very closing verse of this whole book is about when someone strays. And let me tell you, when we all stray, and when you stray, you don't always know it. It doesn't feel dangerous until you look back and you see, or until someone lovingly, hopefully before you're too far off, says, hey, what are you doing? Come, come. And we are responsible for each other. And I do not think that this gives you license to walk into church and tell someone, you know, I, I just don't think what you're wearing is godly. You shouldn't wear that in church. It doesn't give us permission to be critical of people. I think when you see someone that is straying, you have to be very, very careful. And in Galatians, Paul tells us we have to be spiritual when you go over after someone who has strayed. And you bring them back with gentleness and humility. And if you have ever been a lifeguard, you are trained how to save people who are drowning. That's, that's your primary job. But people that are drowning, sometimes in their terror and in their panic, they make it very difficult for you to rescue them. And if you are not well trained, you will end up being drowned with them. In fact, what they instruct lifeguards to do if the victim is fighting is to go under and swim away. Let them relax, come back. And it's not, this is is this not a really good picture of someone who's maybe strayed and doesn't want you? So 
maybe take a couple steps away, pray, ask God to intervene, come back. But we don't give up. Don't ever give up on someone. God will always take us back. And this is what he's telling these people. Watch out for yourselves. Watch out for each other. And it happens in relationship. It's someone you are close to, a friend with, a, a relative, someone you have a relationship with so you can see and recognize their strain. So I believe this is what James is saying. And I also believe that this verse, this very last verse, was the purpose of his whole letter, is that these people were straying. And James is lovingly trying to convince them to come back, repent, come back to the Lord, and trying to convince them, you know, God is merciful. He longs for you. He wants you back. And he says that to us every day. And I praise him for it. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you are faithful, that you are merciful, that you come after us when we stray, that you are always willing to take us back. And Lord, I just pray for each of these ladies here today. Lord, bless them as they go. Bless them as they study your word. Give them something special of you, Lord, to ponder in their hearts. Let them see how much you love them and how much they mean to you. In Jesus' name, amen.